Welcome to the World Art Now podcast, exploring the world through the material culture of its people, in association with Michael Backman Limited. Hi, it's Michael Backman and Sarah Corbett. Hi. And hi. <laughs> We're going to discuss filigree. Filigree. Filigree is something of a mystery for much of the art world and the antiques world. Uh, filigree is, is very thin pieces of gold and silver <clears throat> that have been put together to make something larger. And the reason, or well, one of the great mysteries of filigree is people don't know where often it's made and also where it originated from. And this is, this is quite a, um, it's an ongoing debate within this whole field. Um, it's something that I get involved with quite a lot because we often have filigree here and many of the pieces and many of the cultures in which we deal with and, and, and collect have filigree components. And it, it's a bit chicken and egg type, you know, who, who did filigree first? Who thought of it first? One of the reasons why filigree, um, it, it's hard to work out where it is from, where, where it's made, is because it is so fine that there's actually not enough metal there, like enough, enough sort of large pieces of metal for it to be stamped with an assay mark or, or a maker's mark. And so that's a, one very good reason why very often we never get to find out, um, you know, where, where it's from. There's no hallmarks, for example. And I think it goes way back in history to Mesopotamia. Yeah. 3000 mm. BC mm -hmm. examples mm. of filigree have been found in excavations from that timeline. So we're talking about something that's a well-established technique going way 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 into history yes um and and then it spread it, it, it's a well, well although did it spread you see this is the thing very often people say oh it started in the middle east and and then the knowledge of it spread to to europe and perhaps then then to asia and so on but i i wonder i'd question that because i mean the whole beauty of gold and silver the, the one reason why throughout history people have wanted it and, and, and sought it so much is because particularly with gold and, and also pure pure silver is that it can be drawn out uh, in, in such a fine way. It's so very, malleable. It's, it's very malleable and ductile and that makes these two metals uh, it, it stand apart from almost all other metals. So but and what we do know is that right around the world, probably other than say the Australian Aborigines and maybe some people in Oceania and, and so on, almost every other society valued gold and valued silver, and um, and if they valued gold and silver, they also knew that it could be drawn out, and it, and it doesn't take much to then draw it out into this finest finest wire, which is what filigree is, then to sort of think, well, we could make something really interesting by by joining it all together and into some sort of like cloth or lace like sort of structure, which would be highly decorative for jewellery and, and for larger pieces. So I, I actually think that um, filigree uh, didn't necessarily spread around the world, the, the knowledge, it didn't necessarily travel via trade routes, but that the idea of creating filigree occurred concurrently in, in various places around the world at the same time. And the concept is just naturally born out of the abilities of the material. Absolutely, absolutely. So so people get very sort of, um, you know, caught up in where, who got it first and, and where did it spread and how did it come to Asia and how did it go to South America. 
I, I think actually it probably just um, occurred in all these places at once and, and quite independently of each other because it's, as you say, that, that is the nature of these metals. It really is a truly worldwide art form. You find it yes. in so many localities. Yes, yes. I mean, when we have pieces uh, here, you know, we could work out where they're from. We, we could have like a, a vase made of filigree and it really could be from India or it could be from Cuba or from Peru or it could be from Europe, it could be from, it could be Dutch or it could be from uh, the Dutch East Indies or, or Sumatra. North African pieces oh, also, course, beautiful filigree. Course. And yeah. Russia and Crimea also. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Fabulous. Yeah. Pieces from that. What's I mean? One thing that's uh, kind of amusing with, and someone said this to me once, that he couldn't understand uh, why anyone bothered with filigree, and he said, "What a useless thing! Um, You know, why would you go to so much effort to to build, say, a vase or a bowl or something uh, out of filigree, so that it's essentially full of holes?" You know, it's completely pointless. It's it's just decorative. But it's absolute finesse. Yes, well, it is. Of yes. decorative. I, I know it, it's it's very hard to make. And, and, and it's at its highest um, point of skill. Oh, totally. It's yeah. breathtaking. It is breathtaking. Absolutely breathtaking. One of the things why it's so difficult to make is because um, when you've got such fine, 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 fine. Um, pieces of silver or gold which has been drawn out so thinly and then you're joining it up how you join it up is by soldering it and soldering requires heat and the minute you put much heat onto a very finely drawn piece of silver or gold it melts it just collapses away to nothing absolutely so it's um first of all you've got the problem of how do you draw out uh, the wire to this level of, of fineness and then it's how do you actually join it all up in, into making something. It's, it's, I know when we have perhaps a piece of uh, an item that, that has filigree in it, if I give it to my silversmith to, to look at it, it just goes, oh no, yeah, because it's just impossible to fix because any application of heat will, will just melt the it existing. Does take it away. Yeah, it's a complete, yeah, it, it's, it's really difficult to deal with, really, really difficult to repair. And much of the filigree work goes hand-in-hand hand with granulation added mm. to it mm. to add status, wealth and <clears throat> a decorative yeah. aspect to the piece. What we should say uh, with filigree is that how is filigree made? Well, it's, and then we'll get on to granulation. You know, filigree is when you start with, you, you hammer out um, a, a block of silver or gold and then you keep hammering it and hammering it and then you cut it and then you draw it through uh, like a brass or a bronze plate that has holes in it and you, and you force it through that and then you force it into um, um, a, another aperture that's even smaller and you keep doing that progressively uh, through um, these these holes in, in, in a plate until so that they're smaller and smaller and smaller and that squeezes the wire into being thinner and thinner and thinner more and until more you, delicate. Yeah, until you get to the, the, the smallest one and uh, then by then you've got something almost like a, a spider's web in, um, you know, in terms of fineness. Granulation, on the other hand, is when you would start off with perhaps like a, a wire rod and then you cut it um, into tiny little segments and then you heat it with a blowtorch, each little segment, and it'll automatically roll draws up, up. Draws up into into, into a ball, into a, like a grain. And then those, uh, to make them useful, they need to be added onto jewellery or, or any other surface that you're decorating with the granulation. And again, it, it's, it needs to be done with a soldering. And, and when applying this to something as delicate as mm, filigree, mm-hmm. such a mastery of the art 
Well, to put granulation on top of filigree, as was done in Sumatra, the Malays were doing this with gold. Like, um, and the gold is pure gold, so it has a very high melt. I mean, sorry, very low, low melting, melting point. point. And um, I, you know, the 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 skill involved is is just extraordinary and very hard to replicate today. And the beauty of when you look at granulation work uh, now and uh, and some filigree is that you can tell sometimes that the faking because back then they, they were just superb at, at attaching uh, granules for granulation work onto a surface with a minimum quantity of solder and so you could almost hardly see the solder. It looks um, like it's almost floating there. Yeah exactly it is barely attached but these days when people are faking uh, things they, they don't have that skill and so very often the granulation is just a float in, in solder and yep. that is and completely yeah. lacking that finesse and stuff. Absolutely, absolutely, and and so you can have uh, like maybe a, a piece of Cambodian or or Javanese gold, which is ostensibly two thousand years old, and you look at the granulation and and you can see you can see that it is floating on solder, and then you know that no, that it's not very old. Yeah, that yeah. wasn't done at that mm-hmm. timeline. Mm. It would have been far more tidy at that point. Exactly. So you mention Indonesia mm. as an origin of pieces of filigree, but particular centres would specialise in yes. filigree work. Yes, yes. So, so the Dutch, uh, when um, they had the Dutch East India Company, uh, there, there was a, a fashion in the 17th and 18th centuries in Europe for filigree. And not just jewellery, but often bigger things such as uh, boxes, jewellery boxes, and uh, and vases, and and so on, candlesticks, and and even mirror stands, and and whatever. And so they were looking around the world for who, where where did where were there craftspeople who were capable of doing um, you know quite large quantities of this high degree of uh, of fineness in terms of filigree, and. Um, Already it was being produced in the Dutch East Indies as they became, or Indonesia, by uh, particularly Malay people in Sumatra who had become very good at using um, uh, or decorating their, their, their weapons and their jewellery with gold filigree. So, so the Dutch um, engaged them, and the English did too actually, in Sumatra, to produce items at first in gold um so you had things like small thimbles done decorated with filigree and needle cases things like that and then these were produced sourced from sumatra and then sold in london and amsterdam and so on then they moved on to larger things made of of silver so these uh, were being done in Sumatra, but also I think that the silversmiths and the goldsmiths who were capable of doing this level of fineness were then imported into Batavia, as Jakarta was then known, and the work was, was being done there in workshops on behalf of the Dutch East India Company. And so this work was taken by the Dutch East India Company, um, and it was uh, then um, sold and, and presented into places like India and Russia, and right across Europe. And the interesting thing uh, is, is that a lot of it was sold or, or given, presented to sultans and so on in um, in India. And then when by the time that the British turned up in India as the colonial rulers, they found a lot of this filigree there. And they assumed it was from there. 
But it could have been an important... Almost certainly it was yep. important because, uh, for example, the British Museum has a perfume box, all dye and filigree, fabulous, and it came from the treasury of Tipu Sultan. Now, the, even to this day, the British Museum will say, oh, it's from India, because that's where it was uh, looted from when Tipu Sultan in South India at Serangapatam, um, when his treasury uh, was you know, captured by the British and all of the spoils were, were carted off, they assumed everything they found was, but was, an important, was Indian. powerful man yeah. would have had things from all sorts of places yeah, of as part of his status. Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, you don't, if you want to pr- impress uh, you know, a ruler like Tipu Sultan, you don't turn up with a handicraft from, from a nearby village. The corner, no, no, no it's, it, it's important. It like has today. to be exotic and interesting and unfamiliar. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, and and so um, so therefore, almost by virtue of Tipu Sultan's possession of this filigree, it, it almost demonstrates that it's not from India. That it would have been gifted mm. from elsewhere. But of course, later on, you know, the the, the, the in Karimnagar in India, um, filigree was also being produced, but it, but it's of a different style. Yeah, and this is also key to identification. Different origins will have different patterns, designs, and motifs within the filigree. Um, and you'll be able to find the origin by understanding those different styles, patterns and craftsmanship. Now, Sarah, um, you've got a lot of expertise in North African jewellery, and, of course, filigree is used a lot in in the jewellery there. It is, yeah, made by Jewish silversmiths, primarily initially in Essaouira, Right. And it's still known as Essouaran filigree. Right. Exceptionally fine. Is this just talking about Moroccan? It um, is in Morocco. Yes, Essouaran yeah. is a coastal town in Morocco where much filigree was made. Um, yeah, Essouaran, yes. I've been there a few times. It's all, all, always windy. Yes, definitely. And, <laughs> it's um, always windy. But beautiful. Yes. Beautiful, Lovely but place. take your coat. Mm, um, mm. But this this new form of exotic way to work silver was incredibly desirable. Yeah. And the very richest families would have a silversmith live in oh, to make marvelous. pieces oh, for I the women of the family. I think I should have one of those. Oh, I do too. I think that's a good um, idea. But yeah. in the um, it was Geet region, which is just south of Wazazat, which was incredibly wealthy because saffron was produced there. Right, right. There were some <clears throat> exceptional pieces of filigree, which is almost a hybrid between the traditional styles of the region mm. with sections of very fine filigree between very heavy edges with enamelling. But they've joined the two aspects together because it's this very new, very fashionable, and it set them apart. It yes. wasn't what people wore yes. in that region originally. So they would have a Jewish silversmith come to live within the Kasbah of an extended family, and he would produce jewellery just for the women that lived there. And lots of amazing bracelets with filigree came out of that area, which had been made by Essaouiran filigree makers so the very richest people wanted Mm. it which kind of flies in the face a little bit because usually it was all about the weight of the silver and how much silver you could add to a piece to show your wealth and then there's this new wave of interest where your wealth is shown in the finesse of the craftsmanship so filigree Mm. isn't as heavy no it's a lighter type of jewelry but the value comes from the amount of hours taken to make it and its inaccessibility to other people mm. because of mm. the expensive process 
that it takes to create it. So, so filigree um, in the north of Africa and the Middle East <clears throat> was largely in, in the hands of Jewish silver and goldsmiths. I think uniquely, actually, in North Africa, oh, yes. it was the work yeah. of Jewish yeah, silversmiths. seems to be. And, and so that means that after the creation of the State of Israel, when uh, a lot of the, the, the artisans from North Africa, the, the Jewish artisans, left, it meant that uh, no longer was filigree being able to produce, not not in these areas, not at the, at the same level of fineness. Absolutely. It yeah. disappeared completely yeah. from this chunk of time. Yes. It's just not being made. And, and interestingly, then um, I suppose from the 1950s onwards, then filigree uh, was something that was actually being produced in Israel. It is, mm. yes. And mm. um, what's actually happened in the last 10 years is that two families have come to Esawera Right. To restart the art of filigree. Oh, are they Jewish? Um, they're not, but they've right. been and learned from Jewish mm. silversmiths. Mm. They've brought back the tradition mm. and they're working to teach people locally to make the filigree yes. because it was associated with the place as much as with the people that made it. So even though it was made by Jewish silversmiths, it wasn't called Jewish filigree. It was called Essawaran right. filigree. Right. So there's this sort of a rekindling of the art there now which is interesting to watch it's not as fine Mm, mm. sorry to those who are making it (laughs) (laughs) but it it has the potential to become so and of course we're talking about filigree in india and and indonesia and um and north africa and so on but of course it it was always being produced in in europe uh, particularly in spain and portugal especially and and then lastly the netherlands holland uh, and then from there, it spread to South America, to Peru and Cuba, and, and so all the, these countries now have a, a filigree tradition, which went hand in hand with the discovery of, of obviously silver in silver Peru, there. and so on. And also the Moors, the Moors yes. brought the filigree to southern yes. Spain, and then there's that Spanish yes. connection to the Moors in South America, mm. and I think that the tradition spreads that way. But also, um, Jewish silversmiths went to South America. Mm. Um, at the points when there were issues in Spain. They, yes, um, yes, I believe even Chinese um, goldsmiths left uh, uh, Manila in the Philippines when there was a like an anti-Chinese riot there and they went on the galleon route uh, to South America and, and settled in Mexico. And, and so that a lot of the even the filigree and other gold work that was being done in Mexico... Uh, was actually being done by Chinese from Manila who picked up the idea of filigree, probably from the Spanish uh, um, colonisers, then went to Mexico and, and started it off there. So you've got this incredible sort of mixture Just and they probably stopped off at India on the way. of a network yeah. of things. That, but yeah. if you or I were going to travel through anywhere, what would we be looking for on the ground? Things that interest us. So yes. why wouldn't a silversmith be doing the same looking for the local silversmiths what they're making what they're doing Mm. it's natural that that would be your point of interest if Mm. you are visiting somewhere you hadn't been to before Certainly, I know from a dealing point of view at the moment, you know, one of the hottest areas is this sort of east-west type cross-cultural thing, and, and filigree totally falls into that category because, um, first of all, we, half the time we don't really know where it was from, but we can identify influences, and, you know, if you have a given piece, it could be from India, it could be from Batavia, it could be from Sumatra, sometimes it might just be from Europe. 
And uh, so you've got all of that. And, and then a lot of it was being made um, in South America or in Batavia or India for export to, to Europe or, you know, or even within Asia itself. Um, and, um, and it does really tell a story particularly of the 17th and 18th centuries. And, and uh, you know, it's fascinating for that. It tells a story of trade, commerce, wealth, exploration, um, and, and this whole cross-fertilisation that, that was really starting to happen in that sort of late Renaissance period. It would be a fascinating study to look at the designs in filigree mm. and try to pinpoint that network of ideas spreading. Mm. For example, there are objects that would most likely be Batavian because they were for use with betel nut that wouldn't be relevant to be produced somewhere else in the world that weren't necessarily for export. Yeah, yeah. And so you'd be able yeah. to identify styles Although even of that the filigree. Is, I was just going to jump in there. Even that is complicated because the Dutch who uh, colonised uh, in, in Sri Lanka and Batavia ended up taking up the practice of beetle and then um, had betel nut uh, boxes commissioned for themselves. And then um, an unbelievable quantity of these turn up in Holland now. And then from Holland to here, and uh, they're not even indigenous. But but it, the usage of beetle, of course, is highly indigenous. But the Dutch became addicted to it, and I it would appear, g- given the quantity of, and we're not just talking about filigree sets, although many are filigree or have filigree in terms of the boxes. But the the number that have turned up in Holland suggests that the Dutch must have been eating beetle even in um, Holland when and they went home. And taking the practice back yeah. with them, yeah. so importing yeah. the beetle as well. Yeah. So it's, um, no, it's an extraordinary tale, um, tales within tales. So the use of filigree is ongoing. We still see production of it yes. in various parts of the world. Um, but the things that pass through your hands, what mm. standout pieces of filigree have you handled oh that just absolutely have the edge on other pieces? Oh, we've had quite a lot. It, it, it's uh, I'm always looking for filigree, particularly very good pieces. And um, we, uh, oh gosh, uh, okay. Um, one of my favourite pieces, uh, the 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 art gallery of South Australia, uh, which is in Adelaide. Adelaide is the capital city of the Australian state of South Australia. Were, they were having a, an exhibition on cross-cultural uh, port cities type sort of uh, things. And um, so we're talking about 17th, 18th century travel, exploration, colonisation, if you will, uh, and, and just general trade. And um, I was able to find them um, a, like a toilet box or a, or a jewellery box which had the cipher on it for Queen Adelaide. Um, and one of the queens here, one of the consorts of, of the um, British kings, and it had her cipher on it, and the entire box was in filigree, apart from the area that had her cipher, uh, which was engraved um, into the... In fact, I think it was on the base from memory. Um, but it had Dutch import marks uh, suggesting that this box most probably come from Batavia, and... and um, uh, so therefore, in the Dutch East Indies, so um, which of course is Australia's nearest neighbour, apart from New Guinea. Um, so Indonesia is 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 the, you know, is the neighbour. So we were able to find something that had been produced in Indonesia uh, at the behest of the Dutch in the 18th century, 
and then presented to Queen Adelaide, after which the capital state where the exhibition was to be held was named. And so that, that was quite a memorable piece. That all fits together beautifully. No, I, 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 when, I, I, when I found that, I, I knew who had to have it, and I just I contacted the curators and I said, oh, I've got something for you. And sure enough, and then I was very lucky because I, I, I went to uh, Australia um, sometime after that and I actually saw the piece um, on display in, in their exhibition. Um, and other than that, yeah, we've had, you know, uh, filigree rosewater sprinklers. Uh, uh, we've had um, large trays, all sorts of things made of filigree. And uh, uh, um, there's been so many, I can't even think about what... Sometimes when you look at a filigree tray, the actual expanse of yes. the area that's made with this very fine silver, you just can't imagine the hours of oh. work. Uh, that have gone into creating yes. something that large and that intricate. Well, quite and that, uh, yes, yeah, of course, it's during the age when we didn't have LASIK eye surgery and, um, and, and even good eyeglasses. So, you know, it, it, I don't know how it was done. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, there wouldn't be too many pieces left in someone, you know, after some period of, of producing these, they, they probably were unable to produce more because their eyes would have been damaged. It is such fine work. Mm. And also the rarity of these pieces now, because filigree is easily damaged. Yes. The surviving pieces in good condition yes. are just absolutely rare and desirable. Yeah, and I think also a lot in the past has been melted as well because um, a, a big piece still weighs quite a lot. It's not the idea that, you know, that it weighs nothing. Um, and I think the temptation was that if you had, say... Um, a bar of silver, it wasn't, you know, go make me something small. In some respects, filigree allowed something big to be made because you could do double, um, yeah, an absolute double size really for the same quantity. So you could make your silver go or your gold go further. Um, so I, I, I think particularly in the 1980s when uh, the Bunker Hunt brothers pushed up, you know, the price of silver to such extraordinary levels, so many things were melted and destroyed. And particularly when you've got uh, like a whole genre of silverware, people don't really know where it's from, don't really know what it's for, and it might have a bit of damage. I can see how easy it would have been it to would melt be very it. Easy to mm. make the call to reuse mm. the metals. Yeah. If you're interested in seeing some of the examples of filigree that we've handled at the gallery, you can check our Pinterest page where we have a board dedicated to these beautiful oh. pieces of art. Indeed. Or another option is to go to the website and simply we've got a search mechanism and just type in the word filigree and then every, every entry we have that mentions filigree that's still available uh, will pop up. Plenty for people to see and enjoy, Michael. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Sarah. It's thank been you. It's been very interesting talking about this topic. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful type of work yeah. and nice to explore it further today. Indeed. You have been listening to the World Art Now podcast in association with Michael Backman Limited. To hear more, visit worldartnow.com.